Let's study God's Word. We're going to be looking at several passages this morning. You can see them in your bulletin, so uh, have your Bibles out. I want to encourage you to take notes this morning because we're going to try in the next uh, little bit here to cover a lot of ground. So let's begin in Leviticus chapter 23. And we're going to look at Leviticus this morning. We're going to look at Malachi this morning. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians this morning. We've been in this series called Vertical, and the whole idea of the series vertical is that we live in a way, because we've been redeemed, because Christ has saved us, we live in a way that brings all praise and all honor and all glory to God. As Adam mentioned in his prayer, that it's not horizontal, it's not about us, it's not about us performing or singing to you or us singing as a congregation or, or giving to each other or, or whatever the case may be. It's all directed toward the Lord. And we've seen this in four different ways. We studied four weeks ago about the need for strong personal altars. And by that we meant that everything in our life is a sacrifice to Christ. Everything in our life is a living sacrifice to the Lord and a commitment to the Lord that, that there should be nothing in our lives that is outside of that commitment, nothing that is contradictory to that commitment. So the need for personal altars. Then out of personal altars comes unbridled worship where we praise God, where we exalt God, where we magnify God, not just with singing, but with every aspect of our lives. And then out of worship, as we get our hearts right before the Lord, then we want to run to prayer. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago about passionate prayer that, that God's given us this open access to his throne of grace and that we have this privilege and this joy and we shouldn't be scared of it or intimidated or, or wondering what does it, just go to the Lord and talk to him and then listen to him. So God's given us that access. And then last week we talked about how all three of those things, the altar and worship and prayer, then leads us to live an uncompromised life that our character is pure, that our character is holy, that we have integrity between who we are on Sunday morning and who we are on Thursday morning, who we are when we're praising God and singing as a choir, and who we are on Friday night, that, that it all has to be consistent, that there can't be any compromise, any, any character flaw, anything that, that somebody would look at and go, wait a second, you said you're a Christian, but you're not acting like one. So that was last week. Now, as disciples of Christ, we have been, as we just sang, choir, thank you, we, we have been radically transformed by the mercy of God. And we have been given a new nature, we've been given a holy nature, we've been filled with the Holy Spirit. So there should be no confusion, no doubt, no question as anybody looks at us, unsaved or saved, somebody that hates Christ, somebody that loves Christ, there should be no confusion and no doubt as to who we love and who we serve. It should be obvious. People should know from the moment they meet us that there's something different, that there's a presence there, that, that God is with us, and, and that we're striving to live and please the Lord in every single way. We don't do that to show off. It's not, it's not look at me, look at Paul Rhodes, look at how holy I am. It's not that in any way, shape, or form. And it's not a right or, or an advantage to now, well, I'm holy and you're not, so I'm going to judge you. We've done a lot of damage to the world and to our witness by doing that. So it's not look at me. It's not look at you. It's look at Christ. It's look at the Lord. And the Bible says, by your fruit, 
you shall know them. And that should be true of believers. When we walk faithfully with the Lord, those righteous characteristics of the Holy Spirit, we call them the fruit of the Spirit, they should be unmistakable. And as we speak the truth in love then, and don't forget that word love, as we speak the truth in love, then people will look at our lives, they'll say, that is clear that what you're saying is right because you're completely different than you used to be, and I want to know more about it. Well, we have to remember in every one of these things that we're going to look at that we're not doing it to draw any attention to ourselves. It is vertical. It is toward the Lord. All praise and all honor goes to the Lord. And I don't know if there's another characteristic that that applies to more than the one we're studying this morning, and it's the topic of giving. Giving. In fact, the Bible tells us that we should go so far that when we give, it should be done quietly, it should be done secretly, and we should be careful not to ever commend ourselves and pat ourselves on the back and say, look how much I'm sacrificing. There is an attitude, there's a motive behind giving that, that we'll look at in a little bit, but, but first we need to see a very critical spiritual principle here in Leviticus chapter 23 that we have to understand because we will not have a correct theology of giving without this principle, okay? Just five verses here in Leviticus 23, start in verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give to you and reap its harvest, then you will bring in the sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest. He will wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now on the day when you wave the sheaf, you'll offer a male lamb, one year old, without defect for a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall then be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering by fire to the Lord for a soothing aroma, with a drink offering, a fourth of a hint of wine. Until this same day, until you've brought in the offering of your God, you will not eat bread, nor roasted grain, nor new growth. It will be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. Now you say, well, that's kind of a strange passage, and I don't know what some of that means. And as we get down into it, we're going to discover that. But this concept of sacrifice, this concept of giving, is as old as mankind. You go all the way back to Genesis, you see Cain and Abel brought their offerings to the Lord. That was the first offering basket. That was, that was people bringing offering to the Lord and praising him and thanking him. God instituted giving into the law. He, he integrated it in as an expression to people's gratitude and people's uh, commitment to him. Jesus taught extensively about giving. In fact, Jesus talks about money more than almost anything. So Jesus addressed this, and he was frustrated and angry when people were making a profit in his house by selling things. So he attacked that and, and took that on and said, my house is supposed to be a house of, tell me, prayer. So this, this concept of giving applies to money. It applies to tithes. It applies to offerings. But it also applies to how we live. It applies to the outpouring of our lives giving to him with everything we have, 
with our lives, with our service, with our ministry, with our love, with our words, with our witness, with our character, with our prayer, with our money. It all applies coming out of our love and our appreciation for what he's done. So it really doesn't matter. You say, well, this is an Old Testament passage and this is the law. I get that. Some of the things in the law don't apply to us anymore because Christ fulfilled them. Christ became the embodiment of the law and he fulfilled it. But you have this principle here in Leviticus 23. This is timeless. And it shows the priority that God puts on giving to him. Now, I want to give you three truths this morning that I think will help us, that I I believe are from the Lord. And and the first one you hear in Leviticus 23. So I want to encourage you to write this down, okay? We are called to give to the Lord the first and the best of what we have. Okay? That's principle one. We are called to give to the Lord the first and the best of what we have. This is called the principle of first fruits. And this is what the Lord lays out here to Moses in Leviticus 23. Israel's preparing to enter the promised land. They've come through the wilderness. They're on their way. And God now in Leviticus, it's it's the book of law. He's establishing his holy guidelines. These are not suggestions. It's not, well, they would be great if you guys could try really hard. He's saying, this is what you must do. And he makes it very specific because he knew the people's mind and he knew the people's heart and he knew if he gave them latitude and made it fuzzy, the people would play with it, right? So he makes it very, very specific. He says, on the 14th day of the first month of the year, you're to celebrate Passover. You remember Passover, Israel? That's when we came out of Egypt and I delivered you and you put the blood on the doorpost and my angel passed over and didn't strike down the firstborn, but he did with the house of Egypt because they didn't trust in me and I delivered you. It's a beautiful picture of salvation. So he says, the 14th day of the first month, you're to celebrate Passover. The next day, you're supposed to start a week of celebration, and it's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I want you to constantly look back to Egypt. I want you to remember how I delivered you, and, and I want you to know that I restored you and brought you out and brought you to this promised land, and that's evidence of my mercy. It's an advanced picture of redemption through Christ, though you don't know it yet. So Israel, Passover, celebrate that. The next morning you start the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and I want you to remember Remember your bondage in slavery. Remember the spotless lamb that was slain. Remember the look on that lamb's face as you cut its throat. Remember the blood that poured out and how you put it on the doorpost. Remember how you sat in the house thinking, I wonder what's going to happen. And you heard the presence of God pass over the house and then you heard the cries of Egypt as the firstborn was slain. Remember how Pharaoh said, get out. Remember how you walked out of Egypt in freedom. Remember the fact that when Pharaoh changed his mind, your past slave owner tried to recapture you, but he couldn't. Remember how I took you through on dry ground. Remember how I fed you with the manna and with the quail and the water. Remember how I led you and provided for you. Remember the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and how my presence came down. And now, Israel, I'm about to take you into the promised land. Every single thing a parallel to our former spiritual condition in slavery and how when we get saved, our past slave owner comes and tries to grab us and God says, no, they're mine. 
and how he leads us and guides us and how his presence is with us and how we're moving toward the promised land called heaven. And because nothing the Lord does is accidental and everything he does points to these foundational spiritual principles, he says, look back at the text, there are to be seven days of holy convocation, seven days where you consecrate yourself and I'm establishing the concept of first fruits. Now in this, you're to bring me the first portion of the harvest. Not the leftover, not you had a big meal and you decided to bring me the scrap. No, I want the first portion. And when you bring it, I want you to sacrifice a male lamb without spot. Again, pointing back to Egypt and pointing toward Christ. And then I want you to mix flour and oil. And I want you to pour out wine. What's that a picture of? The Lord's Supper. I want you to do this, Israel. And I want you to do it not because I commanded it. I want you to do it because you're grateful. Because once you were in bondage, and now you're free. When we give to the Lord, whether it's our money, whether it's our sacrifice, whether it's our service to the Lord, we don't give to the Lord because it's time for the offering. We don't give to the Lord because somebody roped us into holding babies once a month. We give to the Lord because we have been brought out of bondage to sin. And Jesus has redeemed us. And we have an eternal hope, an eternal blessing. Just like the choir just sang about. I'm amazed. Are we? Are we amazed every morning? God, you gave me breath today. And I'm only redeemed, not because I did anything, but because Christ did everything. In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus being raised from the dead, listen, is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, his resurrection has opened the way for our resurrection. So it is absolutely no coincidence that Jesus was killed at Passover and his resurrection on the third day was on the 16th day of the Jewish month of Nisan, which guess what, was the day of first fruits. See, that's how God works. The ultimate expression of God's love for us. Now he says, out of your gratitude, out of the fact that every morning you wake up transformed and and adopted by me, out of that, I want your first and I want your best. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 and 16 that our first roots under the new covenant is to lay aside on the first day of the week our offering to the Lord and to give it joyfully and liberally. And the greatest motivation for this is to give thanks for God's redemption. It's about expressing our love and our gratitude to Him. And how differently will we give if it's that perspective? See, it's not about 10%. God established the 10% because he wanted us to know there is an expectation. I want a portion of everything I've given to you. So it's not just about 10%. Those studies show that the average Christian only gives 2 to 3%. 
We're not under the law anymore. You can say, well, we're supposed to, we don't have to tithe anymore because the tithe was under the law. And Jesus fulfilled the law. I understand that. What we do need to understand that the tithe in Jewish law was not just 10%. When you add up all the, the offerings and the payments of the priests and the temple fees, do you know that the average Jew in the Old Testament gave 40% of what they had? Well, I, 10%, I, I, I can do 2 or 3%. Listen, is that, is that how much we love the Lord? Is that, is that the extent of our gratitude to him for redeeming us? Are, are we going to come stand before the Lord and, and say to him, well, Lord, I gave, you, I gave you 2%. I redeemed you. You're about to step into heaven. You're about to be saved forever. You will never know anything other than perfect holiness because you'll be in my presence praising me. And, and you're telling me that was enough. Now, please hear my heart. I'm not talking about payroll. I'm not talking about ministry costs. I'm talking about the act of worship of giving to the Lord. Giving because we love him is in an Old Testament principle. Giving because we love him is a measure of how much we love him for his sacrifice. We shouldn't have to be convinced. And it's not the leftovers. It's not, well, i got to do everything and pay everything and get all my discretionary, non-essential costs out of the way, and, and then after I do that, then I'll figure it out and I'll try to bring what's left. Nope, that's not what Leviticus 23 says. Leviticus 23 says, give me first. The first and the best, because, listen, I know myself well. i got money in my wallet, I'm going to spend it. We will find a way to use up what we have. And that offering that we're supposed to bring to the Lord out of gratitude, it'll get lost in the shuffle. So we have to make sure we have the right motivation because there will be mutations that will come out of incorrect theology and incorrect motives. And that can be exacerbated by the fact that God is so generous and so gracious to us. So let's leave Leviticus 23 and let's turn over to Malachi 3. Malachi is the last book before Matthew, last book of the Old Testament. And we're going to see a second truth about giving. The second truth about giving is that when we give freely and joyfully, the middle part of this is very important, when we give freely and joyfully with no expectation of return, the Lord blesses abundantly. When we give freely and joyfully with no expectation of return, the Lord blesses abundantly. Now, Malachi 3 is, is a very often quoted verse about giving, and it's one of the ones that I call a plaque verse. A plaque verse is a verse that you pull out of context, and you put on your wall, and you say, praise the Lord, isn't he good? Now, the plaque verse still has truth, but the plaque verse doesn't have any context. And context is absolutely essential in Malachi 3. Because if we don't look at the context, we will misinterpret it. Anytime you study scripture, anytime I study scripture, we have to make sure we are looking at context. And this is a perfect example of why that's true. Leviticus 3.10, uh, excuse me, Malachi 3.10, sorry about that. Just read that verse. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Isn't that a wonderful verse? There's been a lot of false theology formed off just that verse. Now go back to verse 9. You are cursed, excuse me, let's start in verse 8. 
Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now read verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, if I'll not open up for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then, verse 11, I'll rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land. It's a little bit different in context, isn't it? Because now it's not, hey, just bring your offerings and I'm going to just open up heaven and pour everything on you and it's going to be fantastic. Hey, Israel, you're robbing me. Here's how you're robbing me. You're not bringing your offerings to me. This text is a rebuke. This text is a rebuke of their selfishness and their unfaithfulness. Malachi was the last Old Testament prophet. He was right after Nehemiah's time. And he's prophesying the people have returned from exile. And they're trying to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But, but they didn't see in their minds God work fast enough. They knew the promises of God, but they didn't see God fulfilling them as they wanted to. So you know what happened? The people became spiritually stale. They became discouraged. And their worship kind of denigrated into dull ritual. And they started to look at the law and they didn't take the law seriously. So Malachi comes along and he says, listen, you've doubted God's love and justice. You've been unfaithful to the Lord. And if you look back at the start of the chapter, chapter 3, he says the Lord is about to come like a refiner. And he's going to use his fire to judge the people. He's waiting for you to repent. And he hasn't completely destroyed us because he wants us to get our hearts right. And if we get our hearts right, he's going to bless us and carry out his plan. But it starts with us. So look at verse 9 again. He says, here's the problem. We as a people have been robbing the Lord by withholding our gifts and even our lives. And God is now saying to us, bring everything to my house. And then when you bring me everything, and I know you're sincere, and I know you're being sacrificial, then I will start to work the blessing that I've promised to you. The cause and effect is that you trust me and you're obedient and faithful. And when you trust me and you're obedient and faithful, I will do what I've said. Then look at verse 11. He says, I'll fulfill this blessing by restraining the devourer because the devil has been destroying your fields. He's been robbing you of your fruitfulness because you haven't sown the right things, either by giving or by how they were living. So he says, what should be coming forth, the fruit that should be bursting forth from your fields and from your lives, that's not coming because you have thought and you believe the enemy's lie that you can avoid faithfulness and still be blessed by the Lord. And I want to tell you this morning, the Lord puts faithfulness as a prerequisite. When we are consistent, listen, when we are consistent and we are faithful, that's when God blesses. The one commendation that God gives us in heaven is well done, good, and tell me, faithful servant. 
not well done servant who was wildly inconsistent, but flashed brightly from time to time and, and, and kind of pulled it together. It is boring to us, and we think it doesn't worth anything. But God says, here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the person that will be true and faithful and loyal and consistent in every moment of every day. Walk with me. And when I see that person, when I see that faithful servant, I am going to bless them in ways they can't fathom. That's how God fulfills it. But we need to be very clear. We don't give with the expectation and with the intent that the Lord now is going to give back. That's not how the Lord works, and it's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches sacrifice out of love and gratitude, not sacrifice out of manipulation. And this is where the philosophy, and let me call it that, the philosophy of prosperity theology fails. We are never to give looking for reciprocation of our giving where the Lord goes, oh, wow, I'm really impressed now because you've given so much. Now I'm just going to pour it all out because you've, you've proven yourself. That's an offense to his mercy. He'll give us what we need. Anything on top of that is gravy. Anything on top of that is an amazing gift of his grace, and he is not stingy. But if we believe we can just say the right things and do the right things and give in a certain way that it will automatically trigger material blessing, we are flat out wrong. God does not work that way. In fact, the Bible's filled with far more examples of people that had to trust and endure difficulty and go through hardship with no physical reward, no financial reward, nothing. They just had to move to a new level of faith, and God blessed them in different ways. We can't manipulate the grace of God at this point. Just that idea alone is repulsive. God hates that idea. Matthew 6 says, your priority should not be here. Your priority is not accumulating here. Your priority needs to be in heaven. Lay up treasure in heaven because the stuff here is going uh, to rust and corrupt and the moths will get to it and it will all fade away. But we can be confident. Now look at verse 10 again because we're going to get excited. That when we give to the Lord sacrificially and faithfully out of the first fruits that he'll bless us and he'll strengthen us and he'll provide above what we ask or think. Proverbs 3, 9 to 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce and then your barns will be filled with plenty. And God says, listen, if you don't believe that and you want to try to outgive me, knock yourself out. Bring everything you've got. Test me. Go ahead. The only time in scripture God says, test me. Go ahead. You, you think you can outgive me? Go ahead. Bring it all in and test me and see if I fail you. What we must not do, look back at verse 9. We're going to move on. We must not rob the Lord. And we have to take a very honest and very intensive analysis 
of our lives. And the Lord is about to show us a very difficult and very relatable example. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Holy Spirit, help us now. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 9. Now this I say, that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed, as it's written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Again, a reminder that if we're going to doubt the grace of God, we're going to doubt the provision of God, just remember his grace. So, what's principle number three? You've heard it before. This is not groundbreaking. You've probably heard 20 messages say this, but I'm going to say it again. How we manage and spend our money reveals our true priorities. How we manage and spend our money reveals our true priorities. Now, that spiritual truth really hit me this week. My daughter, Annie, turned 16, and yes, I'm in mourning. And we decided to give her a phone and to add it to our Verizon account because I think she was the last remaining teenager on the face of the earth without a cell phone because that's the kind of cruel parents that we are. So I went to the nice guy at Best Buy and he helped me show how much money was going to come out of my pocket each month. Between the cost of the phone and the extra line, I didn't even add, you know, extra extra data. Uh, we didn't go from the large plan to the extra large plan because that was another $20. And I joked with the salesman, these are costs our grandparents never had, right? No wonder our generation's in debt. But we've done it to ourselves. We can't live without it, even though they did. And as I'm sitting there in Best Buy and, and joyful, I'm not, I'm not begrudging. My daughter needed a phone. She's 16. It, it, was, it was the right thing to do. The Holy Spirit spoke to me as I was sitting there. You know, the Holy Spirit can speak to you in Best Buy if you listen, right? And I was thinking about this study this morning and how we barely think twice about our cell phone bill. Why? Because it's an essential. I mean, we can't live without our cell phone, right? Uh, if there's evidence of that, just sit in a mall or a restaurant or a hotel and just watch. Can't live without our cell phone. We, if, if the internet's slow, it's like we have a panic attack. Like, the internet's slow today. Like, my kids will come right downstairs. Why is the internet so slow? You realize we had dial-up like 15 years ago, right? And then you have mail, and then it's sign off. And you're like, my internet's slow. Does the total we spend on our cell exceed how much we give to the Lord each month? This is going to get personal. Look at your giving record. It's on breeze. You can go on there and find out exactly how much you've given. I don't know what it is. I don't see it. But just compare how much you've given to the Lord in the last three months versus your combined cell, internet, and cable bill. Which one's larger? That'll tell you your priorities. 
Now, it shouldn't be close, right? The amount we give to the Lord should far exceed that. And when that cell phone get, bill comes and the, and the, oh, my wife hates the cable bill. She just, oh, why, why, why? And I'm right there with her. But, but we cringe, but we pay it, right? But here's the convicting part. When it's time to give to the Lord, all of a sudden our resources are less available. And I would suspect that we would feel more pain giving up our cell phone a month so we can give more to the Lord than we would giving up giving more to the Lord so we can pay our cell phone. I would suspect that's true. Now, please, you know me. Please hear my heart. I'm not saying that to promote guilt in giving. I'm not saying that to bump up the offering. God doesn't want us to give that way because look at the text. It says, don't give out of compulsion. Don't give out of guilt. Don't, don't give grudgingly. I don't want that. I want a cheerful giver. I want somebody who gives out of love and gratitude for what I've done, who's so overwhelmed that they see I can't wait to give to the Lord. Because look at what God's done for me. I'm so humbled by his mercy and his salvation. Adam was such a good word before that song. I'm so, I'm so broken. Look how God's transformed me. Eight years ago, I was lost. Now, look at me. So I want to give to you, Lord, not just with our wallet, but with our lives, with everything we have, with how I live, how I talk, how I minister, how I serve, how I pray, how I worship. Oh, Lord, it's for you. And if we don't live that way and we don't give that way, God says, you're robbing me. Come on, I gave you everything. And if you're doubting that if you give more, that I won't come through. Listen, I will supply all you need. And if you sow sparingly, guess what? You're going to reap sparingly. But if you sow abundantly, oh, your fields are going to be full of fruit. That's what happens when we live vertically. Because if we sow righteousness in our lives... That's what will be produced. But listen, if we keep sowing sin, righteousness is not coming forth. We keep messing around with the world, keep living one foot in, one foot out. Guess what? You're not going to sow righteousness. It's the principle of sowing and reaping. It's not my opinion. It's what the Bible says. Sow abundantly, reap abundantly. Sow sparingly, eh, you're not going to have much. The bottom line is the bottom line. Are we giving without restriction to the Lord? Not hesitant, not without priority, not giving him the scraps after we've taken care of everything else to give. Are we scattering the seeds of joyful sacrifice, of giving to the Lord and saying, Lord, out of the abundance that I have, oh, I wish you could see the faces of those children in Croatia and Bosnia that I saw in 1994 who have basically nothing, who grab that shoebox and go, oh, thank you, and start crying. I wish you could see their faces because you know what? I'm not hurting for lunch today. And I'm not about to be bombed today. And my children are safe and comfortable and have clothes and cell phones and TV and a house and a bed to sleep in. They're not worried about tomorrow. We have abundance. 
And God says, out of the abundance, you give me the first. Look at one more verse. Verse 8. The Spirit of God uses seven definitive words to emphasize just how generous the Lord is to us. In case we have any doubt or any worry or any fear, if I give, I don't know if God will help me. One verse, the Spirit uses seven definitives. God will make all grace abound to us so that always having all sufficiency in everything. Is there any equivocation in those three words, by the way? Having always having all sufficiency in everything, we may have an abundance for every good deed. I don't know if we need any more proof than that, that we can fully trust the Lord completely. So if we're going to live vertically, it's got to be in our giving. And the reason we give will be unmistakable. It will be because we are so grateful to God and so full of joy that we give abundantly and with gratitude out of the first and the best at what we have. And we prioritize honoring the Lord instead of indulging ourselves. And that's a test of discipleship. Discipleship is difficult and it's sacrificial and it's painful, but it pleases the Lord. So how are we going to respond? The reason we waited to take the offering is because we're going to take it now. Now that God stirred us, it's not just, well, announcements, we've got the offering today, I'm just going to give. Listen, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not being manipulative. Please hear my heart. I'm saying, listen, if God's going to speak to us this way, and he's going to tell us out of the abundance, then we need to give out of the abundance. And if you've already written a check and God's stirring you, then write another check. If you were just going to give a little and God said, nope, that's not first fruits, that's leftovers. If you heard about the cell phone bill and you said, boy, I don't, I don't want to check that. I don't, I don't, those numbers aren't going to go well. I'm not asking you for money. I'm not looking for a big offering. I'm saying, how are we going to give to the Lord? How are we going to give to the Lord when we have a ministry need? How are we going to give to the Lord, men, for the Christmas tea? How are we going to give to the Lord, ladies, when you have that neighbor? It was said so beautifully by Christy. Somebody calls you out of the blue. Hey, there's the opportunity. I want you to come to the Christmas tea. How are we going to respond at work? How are we going to serve the Lord this week? How are we going to give to the Lord this week when there's an opportunity to share Christ with somebody or put our arms around somebody and pray for them or to encourage and strengthen a teenager who's struggling with peer pressure or, or self-image or, or is contemplating suicide? How are we going to minister to them? Are we going to just, oh, I'll pray for you. It'll be good. Are we going to do that? Or are we going to give to the Lord who gave everything to us? It's not about an offering. This is about living vertically. That's what God's calling us to. Let's pray.